Have your Bibles open. Keep them open to First uh, Peter chapter two, and uh, we we're going to finish the introduction of First Peter today. This is the final unit. I just want to remind you where we are. Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor mainly, but they're in the Roman Empire. They are uh, increasingly being marginalized. The people are learning, as people learn more about what Christianity is, they don't want to have any part of it. And so they, he's writing for them to, to realize that under this tremendous social pressure and the suffering and pressure, that they don't have to despair. I, I'm sure that the thoughts that they are having sometimes is there's so much pressure and so many people are against this that we're on the losing team. They look around at circumstances and think God has abandoned them. And, it's, and some of them might even be having thoughts that it's not even worth it. You may be feeling some pressure for your faith. I don't know if you are or not. I, I talked about this in the past. It could be coming from family. I can't believe you abandoned our family. You abandoned our faith and, and started going there. Or it could be family who says, oh yeah, you're the holy roller. You're the Bible thumper or whatever other uh, reasons that they would give and so you're feeling family from your pressure or pressure from your family right now or it could be coming from your job or or whatever else but i just want to warn you if none of these are true for you i can tell you for sure the pressure is coming from society as a whole i just want you to check out that i talked about this last week this is a headline from january 7th in in the netherlands now this is a cradle of the reformation the Synod of Dort, so many tremendous Dutch theologians, and, and the society as a whole was uh, uh, Christian in, in nature. They took on Christian beliefs. And the, they were going to sign the national statement, these 250 Dutch Christians. And the national statement simply says that marriage is between a man and a woman. That's all it says. And they're looking at prosecuting them. And you think, well, that's, that's the Netherlands, that's Europe. Of course they're that way. But I want to bring you a whole lot closer to home. As a matter of fact, right in our backyard, these are headlines from uh, recent times in Washington, D.C. area. And if you don't know anything about this, uh, Vice President Pence's wife is teaching at a Christian school. All right, Christian school. And um, that is a scandalous thing to be teaching at a Christian school. And you notice the way they frame it. It has nothing to do with their Christianity whatsoever. And so here we have in America something that 10 years ago would have been accepted and relatively normal is now a scandalous thing in the eyes of many. From what I understand, the church that's behind the Christian school is getting all kinds of hateful phone calls, emails, uh, inquiries, ACLU, and all those sorts of stuff. And it's simply because they have a Christian faith. And so, listen, in society as a whole, I want you to brace yourself because it's coming our way and it's a steamroller. be honest with you, I'm not trying to be negative. That's just the, way, that's the reality of things that are coming here in America. Now, I want you to listen to this commentator named J.H. Elliott. He wrote... Talking about this passage in First Peter, he wrote this 20 years ago in a commentary. He said this. He said that these people were experiencing a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants endangering the common good. This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority group 
to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct. Is that not what's happening today? We are, we are in the times, rapidly moving into the times that, that Peter was writing to those, those first century Christians. That is what's happening. It's going to continue to happen. Don't be surprised if it happens. That's the way it has gone. It, history repeats itself. We hear that all the time. And we're seeing it repeat itself here in the, our United States of America. So, with that, Peter is writing to remind them that things are not as they appear. He wrote to give them some solid anchors to hold them in the storms of life and society that they were facing, the storms that were coming their way. And so what Peter does, and I want to remind you this, and I'll tell you what section we're in in just a minute. Peter writes this way. He says, this is who you are, and this is how you need to act. And so what we're covering today is a this is who you are section. Next week, we'll look at this is how you're supposed to act in regards to who you are. He says you're, you're to do this, and we're in that kind of a section. So um, last week, we saw this. We saw that Christians are living stones. You remember that? That was one of the pictures, living stones. And it pictures our union with Christ. What I said was that we are in close connection First of all, and foremost, with Jesus Christ. And secondly, we are in close connection with one another. It it pictures our union with Christ, most importantly, in our union with others. Then he went on to say in verse number four and five, he said that you are a holy priesthood. And this is a picture of the access that we have to Jesus. And and it's unprecedented, the access that that they enjoy compared to the, the, the people previous to them. In verse number 6 that we read today, Peter expands on that idea and calls Christ the cornerstone. Another term for it in verse number 7 is the head of the corner. That's another way of of referring to it. And so I have a question for you. When he calls Jesus the, the cornerstone, why is that important? Do you know what a cornerstone does? When we go over to Israel... Our guide takes us and shows us different stones. And he said the cornerstone does this. It it determines the height and width and length of the walls of the building. You have have an itty-bitty cornerstone. You're going to have an itty-bitty building. You have a giant, stately, strong, big cornerstone. Then you have a big building. And, And it has to be perfectly square and, and everything has to match up in, in, in that. And if Christ is the cornerstone, what does that say about what he is building? Christ, the infinite God of the universe, the perfect Lamb of God, the, the one who we're going to worship for all of eternity is building. He's the cornerstone of the building that he's building. It tells us one thing, that try as they might, Society's not going to knock it down. Remember what, what God said through Isaiah the prophet that all the nations of the world, the armies of the nations of the world are like a, a, a speck of dust on a scale. They're, they're nothing compared to God. Today, Peter expands what we re- read today. Peter expands on the concept of Christ, the living cornerstone, and what it means that we're uh, living stones. And we see Several benefits, which I want to call today the blessings of belonging to Christ. 
And he frames the discussion by saying that there are two types of people. This is what we read today in verses 6 to 8. There's two types of people. There's believers and there's unbelievers. And he, he compares and contrasts those two people. Let's look at verse number 6 again. It says this, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So honor is for you who believe. And for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This this is fascinating. Okay, a little disclosure here. I really wanted to preach three sermons on what we're going to hear today. Because this first section, verses 6 to 8, it is beautiful the way Peter goes back and pulls Old Testament passages, and when you see the context and the teaching of the passage, it's just a beautiful truth. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to hurry through it and, and, and teach this as, as a unit. So what Peter does is he quotes three verses from the Old Testament, Isaiah um, primarily, and he pulls from Isaiah 28, verse number 16, where it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes in me will not be in haste. Now, in context, and this is what you need to understand, why is Peter pulling from this chapter of the Old Testament? Very interesting. He is pronouncing judgment. Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah is pronouncing judgment on the tribe of Ephraim. Our guide in Israel calls it Ephraim, Ephraim, because of their disobedience and and unbelief. And what Isaiah encouraged the people to do is to not put their trust in some foreign military alliance. Isaiah's writing, if you remember the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom was the one that broke away from Judah. And they were putting their trust in military alliances because Assyria was becoming a dominant world empire. And they're putting their trust in them. And Isaiah writes to Ephraim, and he says, Look, you put your trust in a military alliance, you're going to perish. If you put your trust in the cornerstone that I'm going to lay in Zion, you will succeed. Who's that cornerstone? Jesus Christ. That's that's what, what... Uh, Peter is pulling from now remember what our society is trying to do you remember what did I say that they're trying to do they're trying to demean discredit and shame shame believers as social and moral deviants endangering the common good but what did Peter say about people who believe in the cornerstone he said you won't be put to what shame you won't be put to shame if you trust in the cornerstone. Now, this this world is temporary, isn't it? It's passing. Its its values are passing. Everything that this world values is passing away. And so they can try to pressure you and say you're shameful because you don't take on our values. But the fact of the matter is that they're the ones. They're going to be put to shame, aren't they? Because they trusted in everything that's not the cornerstone. 
Everything that's not Jesus Christ is, is what they're trusting in. And so when we look at this, we see that the very next verse says, but those who trust, they have honor. And I want to talk about that. That's the first blessing of belonging to Jesus Christ is that we have honor. That's the gist of verse number six. We may be enduring shame and reproach by the world right now, but one day we're going to receive honor. Isn't that exciting? You believe in the cornerstone. He's restating the idea of verse number four. If you look at verse four in your Bibles, he says, as you come to him, a living stone. Now, when you look back at the passage we read today, the word shame is very important. He says, those who trust in the cornerstone will not be put to shame. Those who who do not trust in the cornerstone will be put to shame. The word shame is as strong a word as you can possibly get. It it almost carries the idea of curse. You are cursed. You you it's a very very strong word. It's as strong as it gets. And what Peter is doing is Peter is taking the long view and contrasting two groups of people. In verses 6 to 8, Peter is is contrasting believers and unbelievers. Those who don't come to the cornerstone and those who uh, do. Those who don't come to the cornerstone on the day of judgment, they will be put to shame. And this word shame, remember, is the word dealing with the word curse. On the day of judgment, they will be put to shame or cursed into an eternal lake of fire. You know what the Bible says? Because they did not trust Jesus. They trusted everything else. They trusted their abilities, their brains. They trusted a political system. They trusted money. They trusted whatever else. They did not trust in the cornerstone. They, they will be in front of the God of the universe in his royal court with all the pomp and the circumstance that's involved in that. All the majestic beauty. All The Bible talks about there being cherubim around the throne. There's choirs of people singing. There's a sea of glass. There's this magnificence that is indescribable. And these people who are so confident right now in this life, and they're looking at believers and saying, it's shameful the way you're acting when it really counts in front of the judgment seat of Christ. They're the ones who are going to be put to shame. That's the long view that Peter is taking. On the other hand, look at verse number 7. Contrast that with verse number 7. So the honor, the honor is you for, for you who believe. In other words, if, <coughs> if you value Christ as precious, I, I get, this is so important point. If you value Christ as precious, he will in turn value you. Isn't that exciting? God already values Christ as precious. Now, catch the logic I just gave you. I don't know if you caught it. If we value Christ, we are now doing what God already does, and that's value Christ. You see, we're, we're, my, our thoughts are now God's thoughts. God values Christ. Therefore, when we value Christ, we have the same values as God. To you who believe Christ is what, according to this, this verse? They're precious. 
The true Christian will be marked by an affection for Jesus Christ. He loves Christ. That's the privilege given to him to enjoy that love, to exhilarate in that love, to rejoice in that love, to abound in that love. That is a privilege and an honor that we have. But unbelievers, verses 7 and 8, stumble over Jesus and are crushed. Verse number 8 is is an interesting verse. It's a quote from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. And in that passage in Isaiah, Isaiah is talking to the leaders of Israel. And, and I, would, I would love to unpack this, but I'm not going to today. But Isaiah is speaking to the leaders of Israel who, th- who threw away the cornerstone and then tripped over it. That's the, that's the picture. They threw the, the cornerstone away and tripped over it. Now, who in the gospel times threw away the cornerstone and then tripped over that same cornerstone? The religious leaders in Israel, right? The imagery is tripping over the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, and then he talks about a rock of offense. And a rock of offense would be like, you tri- it, it's, the picture is this. You trip over a stone and you're crushed against a cliff. And, and you're, you're, it's a picture of judgment. Okay? So, so a stone of stumbling is a rock that you trip on or you trip over. And a rock of offense is a cliff against which men are crushed. So you have men walking down the road, and it's as if they fall over the stumbling stone, and they crushed against the, 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 the cliff. Linsky, a commentator from several hundred years ago, and they were a little more brutally honest than what we Americans are today. This is the way he said it should be read. A stone of stumbling and a rock that knocks their brains out. I think he's German, isn't he? Doesn't surprise you, does it? I don't know. Is Linsky German or is it Polish? I don't know who he is. But anyway, um, listen to Jesus' words in Luke chapter 20. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, why does this happen? Well, if you look back at your passage today, the latter part of verse number 8, it says they stumble because they disobey the Word. And what are they disobeying? I said last week, they're disobeying the call of the Gospel. The Word there is synonymous with the Gospel. And the Gospel message is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And because they disobey that Gospel call, they are crushed on the Day of Judgment. It's talking about judgment. But we can take heart because the Bible says that eternally we are honored. We, we have honor for all of eternity because we honored the cornerstone. When we get to heaven and, we, and we, when we die and we stand before Jesus Christ, as believers, what are we going to hear? According to Jesus, we're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that wonderful? That, that's, that's honor. You're going to be honored in front of everyone. Well, let's move on. Let's uh, speed up a little bit. The second blessing of belonging to Christ is privilege. We are blessed because we're privileged. Now, how, you say, Pastor, well, how are we privileged? Look at verse number 9. Very first little phrase there. We are a chosen race. Okay? This little phrase is the end of a tight line of logic that Peter constructs. Now, Peter's logic, follow his logic. You ready? His logic is... 
that since Christ is the chosen cornerstone, He's chosen and precious, and we are stones in His spiritual house, then we too are chosen too. That's the logic. When you build a house out of stone, you choose the stones that go in the house. He was the chosen cornerstone. All the stones are chosen. We talked about that last week. That's the logic. Look at verse number 4. Verse number 4 says that Christ is chosen. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. If God is building a big spiritual house, verse 5, then He needs to choose a really big cornerstone, and this makes complete sense. Uh, when you bu- I don't know how many of you build a house, but when you build a house, don't you choose the materials? Last time I checked, that's how they do it. They, you choose the materials. I want this countertop. I want these, you know, these in the walls. I want this, you know, siding, whatever else. You choose the building materials. God's no different. Now look at verse number six. For it stands in Scripture: Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Now you see there that God values that cornerstone as chosen and precious. But look at the little phrase. I am lame. Now, that's a very interesting word. I am lame. It's in, interpreted there. It oftentimes is translated appointed. It means I appoint. Such as in John uh, fifteen sixteen, where he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And, and what's the word? Appointed. Same word as lame in Zion. Verse number six, I appointed you. And what's the appointment to do? It's a purpose. You go, you bear fruit, right? We have another instance of it in in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And this really ties in tightly with what we're talking about today. Look at what it says. It says, and God has appointed in the church, what? Apostles, prophets, teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of gifts, right? God, here the analogy is that this is a body. The church is a body, and God is sticking the body parts together. In First Peter chapter 2 that we're reading, we're a building, and God is choosing the stones that go in the building. And they all have a purpose. If you are in Christ today, you have a purpose. Now, go back to verse number 6 of First Peter chapter 2. And God is appointing a cornerstone in order to build a spiritual house. But Peter uses that same word one more time. And I want you to see this in verse number 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined or appointed to do. Now the word destined is the same word as lay in verse number 6. And it can be used, translated appointed. Now follow what Peter is saying. Peter is saying this. He is saying two truths that we can't reconcile here on earth. God chooses people to be in His body. And men are responsible for the rejection or acceptance of the gospel message. These men, look at the verse again. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They were destined to stumble. They were appointed to stumble because they disobeyed the gospel message. That's the logic. Anyone who 
disobeys the gospel message of believe on Jesus Christ or repent and believe Jesus Christ, they are destined to stumble over Jesus Christ. That's the logic of the passage. That's Peter's logic. Now, when we get to verse number 9, he says, you are a chosen race. Peter is just done teaching the two doctrines that appear contradictory, divine sovereignty, human responsibility. And you have this question, well, pastor, what is our privilege? How do you get privilege out of this little phrase, you're a chosen nation? Well, this, again, this is one of these things I wish I could really unpack it. There are two events in the Old Testament that are extremely important for us today because they picture our salvation. The first event is the the redemption, the salvation, I'll use that term, the salvation of Israel from Egypt, right? Crossing the Red Sea, coming over. That is a picture of the salvation that Christ um, offers to everyone. The second event in the, the Old Testament is the return of the exiles from Babylonian captivity. Remember that? And Peter's referring to two passages that, that express that very well. The first one in, in Exodus 19. Now they're, they're delivered from Egypt and they're getting ready to receive the Ten Commandments. And he says to me, to them, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In, in Isaiah, Isaiah is speaking to the exiles and he says, For I give water in the wilderness, rivers of water in the desert, to give to drink to my chosen people, the people for whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Now, what on earth does this have to do with privilege? It is this. The privilege is that we get to be with him. It's, it's access, if you want to say that. Would you like to have access to important people? I think you would. I would. I, being a Cowboys fan, I'd like to have access to Jerry Jones. <laughs> Tell him a thing or two. And before the game on Sunday, I'd like to have access to um, Tom Brady's food supply, but we won't talk about that. Uh, anyway, where was I? I? I digress. The privilege that we have as believers is that we get to serve the Almighty God. He says, you are a chosen people, a kingdom of priests. He, we're chosen to serve God. That's the privilege that we have. Let me give you another blessing here. Ready? I already mentioned it. We have access. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, the Bible says. In the Old Testament, the only person who had access to God was a priest. You, you've heard the term priesthood of the believer? You heard that term? Can I tell you what it is not? Because in, in America, modern day America, priesthood of the believer means, hey, I can worship God any way I want. Isn't that usually the way you hear it? I, I, I'm, just as, I'm just as legit as you because I'm a... God, Bible says priest of the believer. That's not what it means. When the priesthood of the believer means that we have access to God to worship Him in the way that He calls us to do. When, when you look at the Old Testament, the only people who had access to God were the priests. And they, they went through a human mediator, the high priest, 
But Hebrews and several other places in the New Testament teach us that Christ was our high priest. And now we have direct access to the Father through Christ, the high priest. So we have access. Now, this is very interesting. Because when you look at our nation, when you look at where it's going, when you look at even the needs in our assembly, and you see the prayer letters from missionaries, you have this special privilege of access. And one particularly important way is in prayer. You can go directly to the God of the universe and you can pray. I, I, I cannot emphasize this enough that it is so important that we get together as a group and pray. When God's people pray, He works. Now, I talked about this when I first got here. God uses means, and one of the means is prayer. If you don't pray about it, it's not going to happen. I should say it more like this. If you don't pray about it, He won't use you to make it happen. He'll give the blessing to somebody else. And so you have access to God. Now, why on earth, if you have that kind of access, would you not use it? If you got a VIP pass to the White House, would you use it? If you got a VIP pass to um, the Super Bowl, would you use it? I wouldn't, but I guess that makes me better than you. No, I'm just kidding. What it, what it means is I'm going to be going to Israel that day, so I'd rather go to Israel than I would go to the Super Bowl. But anyway, we have here, and I'm going to I'm going to move on, but we have here a Wednesday night prayer meeting. The next one is February the 6th. You have given to you the opportunity to come right here in this auditorium with a group of other believers and come before the God of the universe and pray for things that God once prayed for with God's people, in God's presence. Why would you not want to avail yourself of that? What a tremendous privilege access is. Well, I need to move on. The, thir- the next benefit, the fourth one is relationship. Relationship. Honor, privilege, access, relationship. He says you're a holy nation. The language, once again, is taken out of Exodus 19.6, and you shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, what does it mean to be a holy nation? It means that we have relationship. God, by His great grace, has done what is completely inconceivable to me. And to anybody who thinks about it, it's, it's inconceivable that God would bring sinners to Himself. It's inconceivable that God would draw wicked, vile sinners to Himself, taking them out of darkness, into light, out of death, into life, out of the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of His dear Son, out of communion with Satan, into communion with Himself. And that's exactly what He has done if you are in Christ. He has separated us from sin. He has separated us from Satan. He has separated us from the world. He has separated us unto Himself. And perhaps the the word that theologians use the most in this is the word sanctification. We are a sanctified people. A holy people. That's what a holy nation means. We have been separated from that which is unholy. 
and we have been devoted to God and we have relationship with him. It is amazing to me that the God of the universe actually wants to have a relationship with me because I know me and he knows me better than I know me. And it amazes me that he wants a relationship with you because <laughs> I know some of you. <laughs> Well, let me let me yeah. <laughs> let me move on. Another benefit is belonging. A people for his own possession. We're possessions. Remember that the world is trying to marginalize us. The world is trying to tell us you're on the wrong side of history. You're living in the past. You're living with all that religious stuff. We're, we have moved on past you. you. They're trying to tell you that you're backwards. You're living in the 17th century. You're, you're wanting all that Puritan stuff. Can I tell you they're wrong? We belong to God. Therefore, we are significant. Did you catch, catch that one more time? We're not, God didn't call us because we're significant. God called us and made us significant because we're in Him. It's not that there are anything special about us. There's many popular Christian songs that would have you to believe that we're special and that God redeemed us because we're special. And that's, that's wrong. We're precious and, and we're purchased by the, with the eternal blood of Jesus Christ. And that's our value and that gives us security. As a matter of fact, John chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus makes it clear. He said, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We're His possession. He bought us with a price. We have significance. And you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have possessions too that are significant, don't you? And you value them. And Christ values you. And don't listen to the world when they try to marginalize you. You are valuable to God. You're valuable to Jesus Christ. Let me give you one last one. Service. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of all these words? Look at, look at verse number 10, last part. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Please catch the logic. We have received this citizenship into a heavenly kingdom in order to forever sing His praise. This is the only time that this word for proclaim is used. And it means to publish or to advertise. It means to proclaim something that previously was unknown. The word excellencies. You know what that word means? Every time I think of the word excellent, I think of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Remember that movie? Excellent, dude. Well, the word excellencies is, is only used here and it means heroic deeds. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people from his own, a holy nation, people for his own possession, so that we can proclaim to the world in the face of the opposition, the heroic deeds of God in Jesus Christ. Proclamation. That means you got to speak. That means you got to tell people. Second Corinthians chapter five tells us that we're ambassadors for Christ, meaning that we speak the Lord's words to others. What I can't, I can't even. I wish I could somehow just 
what's up here and in my heart, I could get to you, that we can speak God's words to others. That's how important our job is. I think anybody, if they had a chance, would love to be able to speak to the president, for the president, whoever they are. You would love to be an ambassador for the president. Wouldn't you love to be able to, whoever the president is, to walk up and say, President so-and-so said this, Aslan, make your bed. That's what the president said. Okay? (laughs) Or whatever whatever it happens to be, it doesn't matter. Wouldn't it be a privilege to be able to speak the president's words? And we have the privilege to speak the words of God Almighty. We have the ability. We, We can speak for the God who has the ability to do heroic deeds on the scale of miraculous. What a privilege that is. Instead of dropping your head when you have an opportunity to speak about who you represent, you might as well lift your head and say, I have the privilege of being the announcer of the mighty heroic deeds of the God who has called me into His service. And we shouldn't shrink back from that. And we shouldn't be nervous about that. There's no being nervous about it. Just say it. Just say it. I've talked about before how that when I preach, there's always that trepidation on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And and um, I completely scrap a sermon and, and rewrite it sometimes. It drives Gordon nuts, I'm sure, but he's patient with me. I appreciate that. Because then I have brand new slides that he's got to recheck. So, um, but um, what is amazing to me is when I get feedback on how people have processed what God said. All I'm doing is standing up here and saying God's words. I'm, I'm reading the scripture, interpreting the scripture, proclaiming what it means, and that changes lives. It has nothing to do with me, it has everything to do with God. I was listening to Alistair Begg this week, and he was preaching a sermon on how God and His truth are an anchor for the soul of a Christian. Some of you may have heard the sermon. It was, it was on his radio broadcast this week. And he was talking about an event that happened when he was a child in Scotland. He said that uh, when he was a, a young lad, is the word he used, I'll use the word boy, um, when he's a boy, a, a group of, I don't know what they were, sort of like Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts or whatever, they went on a camping trip and they set their tents up near the cliffs in Scotland, the cliffs over the, the, the sea there. And they set their tents up and then they went and performed some activities. While they were gone, a storm rolled in and the wind was blowing mightily. When they got back, to where their tents were, some of their tents had come unpegged and blew over the cliff into the sea. Others of them were partially knocked down and others of them stood. He said that his was one of the tents that stood. And he said, I remember being a, as, as a boy, I remember like it's yesterday, walking into my tent, looking at the tent pegs as I did that, thinking to myself, I'm so glad that my tent was anchored in the solid ground. The world may blow against you. Your families might be blowing against you. You might be on your job. But Peter says that if you are anchored in the living stone, the cornerstone, you will not be blown down. You will not be blown away. 
your anchor will hold. Remember the the old hymn, uh, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And we have all these privileges. And we have all these blessings. What was Peter? What did Peter say? So that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Are you doing that? Are you anchoring your soul and then in turn telling people, look at the God who saved me. Turn to the God who saved me, who will save you as he does me. That's such a precious privilege. I hope that God will work in your heart and give you purpose and that you'll be intentional about sharing the gospel, giving out tracts, whatever it happens to be, to those who are anchored in something that the Bible says is going to cause them shame one day. We thank you, Lord, for the blessed truth of your word. We thank you that you're our anchor. We thank you that you're our living cornerstone, that if we put our trust in you if we believe in you we will never be put to shame no matter what this world tries to tell us lord as a matter of fact we'll be honored and we have privilege and we have access and we have relationship and we have served and we have the privilege of being able to serve you lord i pray that you will thrust us out of here so joyful at what you have done and are doing in our lives and that we'll look with compassion upon those who don't know you and speak the truth and proclaim the excellencies of our God and Savior. In his name, amen.